Welcome everyone. This is Reverend Dr. Gene Archer, um, pastor of the Pilgrim Church of the Firstborn, and we. This is the um, this is the twenty seventh day of of May, Thursday, twenty twenty one. Welcome to our study of the teachings of Jesus. Um, tonight we're going to go right into it because I have lots of ground to cover. And um, tonight we'll, we'll make an attempt at dealing with divorce and remarriage. Divorce and remarriage based upon what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter five, verses 31 and 32. All right, so what I'm gonna do is open with a word of prayer and then I'm gonna read the text. Father, we thank you that you have given us all we need for life and godliness in the present, here and now. Pray, Lord, that you will help us through your Holy Spirit to understand the complexities of this particular topic. Very difficult, very controversial. And, oh God, I pray that at the end of this study, we would go away with more clarity that is informed by your word. And so God, I pray that you'll help me to articulate your truth um, accurately, as close to the text as possible. And oh God, areas that are gray, oh God, I pray that you'll give further clarity as you're the only one who can bring revelation to the truth of your word. And so I commit myself to you and the people and everyone who is hearing this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5 um, from verse 31 and 32 to verse 32. It says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, um, there you have that text and that's a springboard text actually, as I'll be dealing with um, different aspects of, um, of the study. Um, it's interesting to note that many books have been written on this particular subject. Many of them are very, very dogmatic concerning um, the actual outworking of what Jesus says here. And so I have two main goals tonight. One is that, and it's very difficult to achieve both of them, I should say. And so one is to emphasize Jesus himself in the passage from Matthew 19 is emphatic about divine design for marriage. What God has joined together, let no person put asunder. So when you match that with um, Matthew 5 verses 31 and 32 with um, Matthew 9, you see 
that um, Jesus makes this profound statement. And so God himself does not contradict anything. And so there are seemingly certain passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament might appear to be a contradiction. But let us look at some statistics, first of all. Um, in America, this is American statistics. I was, um, you know, it's since it's kind of um, the, the standard as it were with divorce and remarriage so much. So I'm gonna use that just to give an idea um, that would shed some light on the global statistics too. In 1910, only one in every 10 marriages ended in divorce. By 1920, it had risen to one in seven. By 1940, it was one in six. By 1970, it had escalated to one in three. And today, um, for every marriage that lasts a lifetime, there's yet another one that does not. So technically, one in every two marriages today end in divorce. And so common law, so to speak, is, is, the, is the common thing these days. Couples living together without being married. But the Bible teaches that marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled. Um, I want to eliminate in this whole process the stigma and shame that divorced people live with. And I'm not saying that all divorced persons live with this because of the healing we get through Jesus. But divorced people are held in some degree of contempt and viewed with suspicion and a kind of second-class type of Christians in the mind of people, even if they do not um, you know, say it out loud, right? So um, you may think and, and don't think about it this way, but I hope that you don't think about marriage people like this. We are in a fallen world and um, we are leading with people who are imperfect, people who have struggles, people of baggages. And some of these baggages, when you're marrying to someone, is not like, that's your baggage, that's my baggage. No. It's our baggage. And there's an old saying, everyone has some junk in their trunk, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Everyone has stuff that we are wrestling with. And there are some residual factors too in previous relationships and marriages and divorces even before one comes to faith in Jesus. So we, we hopefully will get to that too. Okay, so it's incredibly painful we're um we're married people are dealt with the way that they are dealt with the problem is how do i honor and esteem marriage without dishonor and defaming those who have experienced divorce and yet still how do i encourage and affirm divorced people without appearing to minimize the importance of honoring one's marital commitment and vows. That is the tension I'm working with in the study tonight. And so it's not as simplistic as, oh, you know, 
Jesus says that there should be no divorce and blah, 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 blah. And some people, um, without studying the literature in depth, or depending, depending on what kind of literature they are reading, to look at one side of it and just, boom, make a general statement like that. This is very complex, and I do not have all the answers. No one has all the answers. Um, let me just state that right now. But we have enough to know what is right from what is wrong. Okay? And so if I, you know, magnify the, the, the value of marriage and stress, the importance of faithfulness to one's marital vows, divorced people might feel judged and rejected and unfit for ministry and service in the church. This is a common thing too, which it has residual effects. And again, if I express compassion and love for divorced people and remind them how much God really does love them, others will think I'm glossing over their failures and that I am contributing to the very devaluation of marriage um, that I earlier um, denounced. And so the stress is the permanence of marriage without condemning the divorce. And so the intention of God is that marriage is permanent. Um, the, the divorce are the exceptions. And I must clarify that there are norms in the Bible, but there are exceptions that not necessarily contradict those norms. It's appointed unto man, wants to die. That's a norm. But yet in the scriptures, we see people who never experienced death, Enoch, um, you know, and, and others, um, Elijah, and yet people would experience death twice. Lazarus experienced death twice, and um, Jairus' daughter and, and, and others, you know, who have been resurrected, they die again. And so um, this is where I'm going with this. Appeal to divorced. Uh, my emphasis on the importance of marriage and honoring vows um, and, and fighting to stay together does not mean I don't love you and care about you or that you aren't wanted here and you can't fit into um, any activity in, in ministry. I know this is a very ticklish area because once somebody has been di divorced and so on, there's, a, there's this thing that is over them until they die. And it's like they cannot go, they can only go so far, so to speak. Those are some areas that are very difficult. And to the married person, my emphasis on the dignity of the divorced um, person and, uh, and their value to God and the forgiveness and restoration that is available to them through the cross. That doesn't, um, I, I take, that doesn't mean I take a very light view and casual attitude toward marriage and that marriage isn't worth um, preserving um, or adopting, I, I'm not adopting a loose view of marriage either. Um, you know, divorce invariably involves um, many, many destructive elements. Um, the devastation caused by the breakup of the marriage is so widespread and deeply painful that it needs to be addressed in a clear and forthright way. Divorce is um, indescribably painful. I've never been through one, but those who have been through it. It is someone once said that it is it, it is more wrenching than even death because with death, you know that 
you know, you kind of have freedom, you kind of miss the person, and um, it's kind of some closure. But but with divorce, it's like a, a death that is still alive, so to speak. A death of a relationship, and yet both of you are still alive. And so the sense of guilt and shame and failure and rejection is more deeply felt in divorce than perhaps any other experience. Um, some statistics say people are not the same. Their expectations in life are not what they thought. There's a trust issue now because they feel like, you know, once I feel like this, how can, how can I trust a woman? How can I trust a man anymore? And um, that is sad. Marriage, divorce, remarrying involve the taking a sacred oath and vows and entering into a sacred physical relationship and spiritual relationship to with the, to, together with the breaking of those vows and the severing of those relationships. Marriage is unique among all human relationships in that it is obtained by God, ordained by God. I'm, I did a notes compilation. I compiled some notes. And so I'm just reading from that to keep on track. And then I will pause at certain key texts in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to address certain issues. Okay, and so when you marriage in the Bible, especially Christian marriage, is, is a kind of reflection, or supposed to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. That is what makes it really sacred, especially Christian marriage, really sacred. And so it's not parent to child, not friend to friend, not brother to sister, not husband to wife, but it reflects Christ and the church. And so um, the Bible says in Ephesians 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The, the giving of the self is a, the laying down one's life. And the Greek word for love there is agape. Of the five Greek words for love, agape is used there in marriage for the husband. So that's a serious thing. And, um, you know, Christ loved the church, but the church doesn't love back Christ in the same way. So that's a hint right there that um, we're going to see later on, not because one party might be unfaithful in a relationship. It means that divorce has, is an automatic thing. There's forgiveness, there's healing, um, and if all other options are exhausted and there's no way, then divorce is, um, is permitted but not commanded by God's word. It's interesting to note that um, um, the two main reasons for divorce just on the surface is um, sexual infidelity and if one's unsaved spouse, if you're married before you're saved and then one person gets saved and for some reason, the unsaved one wants, deserts the relationship and wants a divorce, then the divorce can, should be permitted. This is stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. It is laid out right there. We'll get to that. Maybe not in this study. Um, and so divorce, there, 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 there's some, I don't want to get into this too much, but I'll touch on it. 
There are some who hold that divorce is never permissible. And there are schools of thought like that. And um, in that case, that is a myth, by the way, I must say. And those who hold to that view are kind of a super spirituality type of thing. Divorce is never permitted. And so and that is so then remarriage is out of the question totally. I've, I've had experiences with that in the church in Jamaica, not our church per se. Our church has a strong view of that. I'm not going to get into that. But there's another church in Jamaica that um, a very close relative of mine was involved with. And, um, and um, he was in love with this girl. And the girl was um, a Christian, but from another denomination, evangelical, of course. And she had two children in the previous relationship. And she had a terrible divorce. Um, every divorce is terrible, but she had a divorce before she got saved. So now she's saved, a single mom. And then this brother now is saved and yet still um, was in love with this girl and wanted to marry her. And the church said, if you marry that woman, you will not be able to step into our pulpit as a minister of the gospel. And um, so that was unfortunate. Of course, I didn't get married. And um, the, the strange thing is that, um, that many people are suffering in silence because this is not addressed in some of the churches um, in, that, in that situation. Now, what about when she came to Christ and asked for forgiveness and anyone in Christ is a new creation? Would you say that her, all the previous things that she did before were forgiven when she came to Christ there? I would believe so. And I would believe in such a case, she'll be free to marry again under, under such conditions. Anyway, um, another thing is that, um, is that divorce is sometimes permissible, this, 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 this group holds to, but the remarriage is never permissible. All right? And so divorce, but no remarriage. Divorce is permitted for sexual infidelity only, but remarriage is not permitted. This is a school of thought that holds to that view. And in this view, the majority position of the early church for fathers, they held this view. And the most articulate modern um, defenders of this view are, um, you know, from the Wesleyan kind of background of church. Um, there's a book written, Jesus and Divorce, by um, a guy named Gordon Wenham. And it's 1984, this was written. Hodder and um, is, is the, is the um, publishers of this. Divorce for sexual infidelity and desertion, but not remarriage. So these are the two conditions why they allow divorce and desertion. And, and no remarriage. And desertion, as I said, is when they, a spouse deserts the other partner. Um, just, just pick up and leave. Uh, desertion can take different forms. It can, it can take the form of not taking care of a wife. In the Old Testament, we're going to see that. That's a form of desertion where you can be present and yet deserted. Um, in fact, um, the, the whole term widow um, in the Old Testament the old, the old term widow in the Old Testament um, means, one of the definitions is means to be um, a husband who is absent. 
not necessarily a husband who is dead <laughs> um, in, in the sense of influence and everything. Divorce and remarriage. Divorce and re divorce is permitted for sexual infidelity only. Um, the innocent party is permitted to remarry. This is another view which um, states that yes, it's permitted, but only the, the, um, the innocent party is permitted to remarry, right? That is important to understand. Um, it makes divorce permissible, never mandatory. The reason why this is, um, is, is so is because of um, infidelity is the main thing because Jesus taught that. But Jesus did not teach everything about divorce and remarriage. This is important to understand. Okay. Jesus did not speak everything about divorce and remarriage. And all scriptures inspired. We need to remember that. And so what Jesus Christ did not get into in details, you're going to see that um, the scriptures would, um, because the same Lord Jesus who is a God breathed, he's the one who inspired scripture still, right? The God inspired scripture. So if, if Jesus is God, then all scripture must be held equally so. Um, now, those are some of the views there. Several issues that are not addressed too. Um, first, the status of those who were married and divorced before coming to faith in Christ. That is, um, I touched on that in my talk earlier. Um, do, um, is it that conversion, forgiveness, and the fact that there are no new creatures in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, say that they are free to remarry? Well, I, I believe so. Um, and nothing is said in, in these views about the status of the, um, the, the, the so-called innocent party. And, um, and so here are some reasons that people give for divorce which are not biblical. And I just want to clear this. Um, we don't have anything in common, goals, values, hobbies, joys, etc. So therefore we need to divorce. Not, not a good reason, not a biblical reason. I don't love him or her anymore. Not a biblical reason. Staying married will do more harm than um, to the children than getting divorced. Not a biblical reason for divorce. We never have sexual relationships. Not a biblical reason for divorce. Because there's some issue about the consummation of the marriage. That is why it's important to, um, to there's a clause that they say in Jamaica, um, if, there's, if there's no impediment in each of you, in other words, you have to be honest and say, oh, suppose a guy is a, is a eunuch or he, he uh, is impotent or the woman is, is, um, is, is um, a hermaphrodite or what have you, and, and they falsify that information, then, you know, that's why that question has to be asked, right? Um, so that um, there'll be clarity knowing that all the equipment that is needed to consummate the marriage is working properly. Another thing is um, we never have, she, he or she isn't a believer. Now, as I said earlier, if you're not Christians before and then one of you gets saved, that doesn't mean you have to divorce, you stay together. But if the non-Christian one wants a divorce and wants to desert, then you can let him go. But if, but, but 
but if they want to live together until death does do part, and the person is not a Christian, you don't divorce that non-Christian. No, if both of you are engaged to be married and one becomes a Christian and the other one is not a Christian, the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked, then you shouldn't marry that person. <laughs> you know, um, and so that is how serious it is. Another thing is that I'm exhausted. He or she will never change. It's useless and hopeless. That's not a good, not a reason again. Another one is incompatibility. Oh, that's not a reason again. What, you didn't know that before? I, I know couples who are so-called educationally incompatible or intellectually in the sense of one is very educated and the other one is not educated at all and they live happily ever after 40, 50 years. So that is no grounds at all. Love transcends all of that. But let's look at this as a quick survey of the biblical evidence. The Old Testament on divorce and remarriage. But, but um, okay, the main text for that is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses one to four. Um, but what I want to do is, is go to something else before I get there in the Old Testament, okay? Adultery, abuse, abandonment are biblical grounds for divorce. They were so in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So let me just cover this before I get back to my other notes. Um, the myth, as I said, Jesus specifically allowed divorce for infidelity. Infidelity. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, this, this applies also to the man too. You know, um, it says here, because you are speaking in the Jewish culture, you're going to see that people might think that the Bible is, uh, is misogynistic or it's... It, um, Men have more rights than women. But we're going to see in the Old Testament, that is not so. That is not so at all. And so when Jesus made this statement in, in Matthew 19, verse 9, Jesus did not say that this is the only reason for divorce. We find other reasons for divorce in Scripture. And, um, and, and so therefore, of course, I mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. I'll get to that eventually. But Exodus 21, verses 10 to 11. It says, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish the first wife's food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. In other words, in the book of Exodus, if a man took a second wife, it was against God's command to reduce the first wife's food, clothing, marital rights, and love. And love. He was not allowed to demote her to slave status. If he was unwilling to treat her as a wife, he had to let her go so she could marry someone who would treat her properly. No, no, that's bigamy right there. And so God 
protected women in so many ways. The same was true of a prisoner of war wife. Back in those days, um, who was a woman was captured um, during battle. If a man took a captive as his wife, he had to do her the honor of letting her mourn before sleeping with her. And his wife, and his wife, as his wife, she must be treated properly, not raped. Okay, this this means that even during the war times, when um people captured women and so on from other nations, God protected the women with these rules from the Jewish people. If Israel did anything like that, they need, they were not to do as the other nations rape the women and, and like what we see happening today. The law of Moses required divorce in cases where a man reduced his wife to a slave and tried to sell her. This is this is not even for sexual impropriety or anything like that, right? He had to let her go and give her freedom to marry someone else. This was a law in Israel. Now we might say, how do you apply that today? It, it could apply, be applied to psychological abuse. Some scholars believe it could refer to psychological abuse, withdrawal of financial resources, and all kinds of other traumatic things that women go through in, in, in secret, in the quiet. Okay? Bring her into your home, the Bible says. Um, the husband could not treat his woman, this woman in any way he wanted. She was either a wife with rights and had to be loved, or she had to be set free. Sometimes people... When I shared this with some persons in the past, they, they didn't know this was in the scriptures. Okay. Oh, that's Old Testament. Okay. How do you apply that today? Because many people ask questions about if Jesus gave those two reasons, um, desertion and so on, how do, you, how do you factor in abuse and other factors? Well, this is what we're getting into now before we get into the other quite obvious stuff. Now, it is stated in Deuteronomy 21, Deuteronomy 21, verses 4, 11 to 14. Let me read it. If you notice among the captives a beautiful woman, that means you go to war, capture all them, there's a woman, a beautiful, and are attracted to her, and you take her as your wife. This is reiterating what I said before. This is the actual text. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, because back then, um, the shaving of the head was a symbol of mourning, um, as it were, um, you know, and when the Egyptians were mourning, they grew their hair. When the Jews were mourning, they shaved their head, just the opposite. So um, they shaved their head, um, trim her nails, and put her aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. So there's no association in that category again. All of these three things, God laid down to protect the woman's dignity that she could not be just treated any other way. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, there's a time period given. Then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. You can, you can now 
marry her and have sexual relationships. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. Now, there's some scholars debate about this because when it's not pleased with her, that no, no other reason is given. What does that mean? And we can't speculate about that. It, 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 could, be, um, it could be something deeper, but we have to be silent where scripture is silent. And some experts might say, oh, I have a spiritual intuition and I can just figure this out. No, if you're not pleased with her, um, um, let her go wherever she wishes. That's, that means um, if she, she, she's free to go and marry, suppose you, you, you love her and, and you take her like that. Um, and there's some complexity here. And I'm, I must be honest with you, brethren, um, is nobody knows quite sure what this is. Some people give some important points on it and dig deeper into it but I'm not going to go right there. It, just take it for what it is right there for now. I will, I'll have to study deeper, this particular section here, and bring more clarity with that. But I'm just telling you the general protection of women when it comes to divorce. You must not sell her. In other words, don't sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Okay? Very important to understand that since you have dishonored her. And so you, you, um, you have to treat her with respect and dis dis discipline. And some believe that this sounds like abusive marriages today where a woman has no voice and no power. All she can do is obey like a slave. And if you... Um, you know, that, that, that makes some sense because the other New Testament doesn't go into the details and clarify more on this. Now, when a woman chooses to be abusive, when a man chooses to be abusive, he breaks the covenant. An abusive man forfeits the right to remain married because abuse is to de-womanize to take away her womanness, um, to depersonalize and um, you know, dehumanize the person. And marriage is supposed to accentuate the worth and the value of persons, right, at the deepest level. And so that's interesting um, observation there, which will apply. We're gonna go into that in more details, however. How can we be so sure that abuse and, and, and even substance abuse are serious in God's eyes? God doesn't want abusive people to be um, in his church. We are not supposed to be abusive because that itself is, 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 is not good and abuse can take different forms, right? Um, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in Corinth to end their association with any sexually immoral person, drunkard, emotionally or financial abusive person. A financial abusive person is a person who takes away the financial rights and care of the wife when his responsibility is to take care of her. And if he has, if he's taking care of himself and others, 
then he's not giving himself as sacrificially as Christ did so to the church. Um, okay. Ephesians 5 verses 3 to 7 goes into all the reasons um, in my notes. I won't get into all of this now, but it goes into some of the reasons why um, we should not take abuse lightly. If you know of abuse happening in a relationship in, in whatever level, if you cannot deal with it as a husband or wife and ask God's grace to, to um, deal with it in your way, then you need to take it to the, the higher authorities, right? And so it's important to understand that. All right, now um, I must also go into Exodus again, chapter 21, verses 9 to 11. A husband who reduced or didn't provide food, clothing, or marital rights for his wife was required to let her go free, presuming to marry someone who cares for her better. Wives couldn't be demoted to concubine status or slave status. The, whole, the, the husband has two choices, care for her properly or let her go. Don't hold her hostage. Right now, let's get into an era now, a verse that many people use in Malachi, which talks about um, God says there, um, I hate divorce. Now, any people, many people quote that it is not a discussion I have with a Christian about divorce, to my knowledge and recollection, that they don't quote that passage. I hate divorce, says the Lord. Well. Um, that is not the best translation. Now, God doesn't like divorce. Don't get me wrong. Right? But until death does do part. So it is, it is quite clear that God's intention is not for flippantly divorce. But it's important for us to note that we need to look at this text here properly. The Hebrew doesn't say, I hate divorce. As if God hates divorce in that context. Yes, God doesn't like divorce. He hates divorce, but don't use this verse to say that. Let what this verse says. Let me read some notes here. The translation of this verse from the ancient Hebrew language to English is incorrect. The earliest English Bible, Wycliffe, Geneva, Bishops, and the Great Bible, don't translate it as I hate divorce or God hates divorce. And the three most recent English Bibles um, don't either. This verse is not about God's anger at divorce. God is angry, but we're going to see in the context. But his anger at hypocritical, unfaithful, violent husbands who dump their wives without just cause. Because the whole context of this passage here um, in, in Malachi was that from Malachi 1 and 2, you see where they were treating God with disgust and offering lame sacrifices to him and doing all kinds of things. They were unfit, they broke covenant with God in the sense of um, not respecting God and treating God with reverence. Now, a marriage is not a contract, it's a promise. Right, and it's not like you know 50 50. You don't know, it's a promise to each other, 
that you're going to do everything within your power to live until the end of your lives. Malachi 2 verses 15 to 16 can be translated from the Hebrew to English like this in the New International Version Bible. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Malachi chapter 2 verses 15b to 16. And so let me just be clear on this. The man who hit it, let me read it again. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel does not, say the Lord, does violence to the one he should protect. Says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So God is one in the husbands. Be on your guard. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth because what they were doing, they were marrying, you know, when the wife is young and then she had a few children and, um, you know, she might lose her shape or in the kitchen or doing a lot of stuff and she's not the same as when he just married her. And these guys were going to younger women. Um, the, the background indicates that younger women um, and then coming before the altar and praying and crying before God and say, no, God said, no, just go away with that. Go away with your false spirituality. We see this happening in the church quite often. Even pastors and people in the pulpit, they have, um, I remember years ago, I was having um, I was at a service, I think it was here in Toronto or in Jamaica or somewhere in New York or somewhere else at a service. And um, we had invited this a preacher to preach or this person invited a preacher to preach. I don't remember all the details. And while we're sitting up there, um, the preacher turned to, to the other preacher beside him who invited and says, um, that one dear, you can sit up with her on the pulpit. Nobody could hear, just between each other. And I heard. And then, and, and, and the, 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 the other preacher upset, surprised. He said, no, man, what do you mean? And I'm still wanting, you have her for yourself? That is some serious nastiness happening in the church from at the pulpit level. Okay? And I can guarantee that man has his wife somewhere. And yet still looking over the arm, the, the, the people of God and the women trying to be selective in, in using their authority and their gifting and their power to draw people to themselves. The Bible talks about foolish women who are led away into these, um, into these corruptible things. And so the same verse in English Standard Version, it says, another version says, let none of you be faithless to your wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let none, let none of you be faithless to his wife, to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord. Um, the Holman Christian Standard Bible published um, Lifeway um, translated like this. Um, so watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously against the wife of your youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, this is the man, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord God of hosts. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Malachi 2 verses 15b to 16. And so um, he hates and divorces his wife. So it's not that God hates divorce, but he hates divorce, hates and divorces his wife. That's what the text says. And God hates that, but God is more seriously against the reason for this God, the divorce there. It was not based upon biblical grounds at all or even permitted in that regard. God is not against all divorce. God is against treacherous divorce, divorce where vow breaker abandons the faithful spouse and against um, infidelity, um, you know, and even with desertion. There are reasons there. God is very, very just, brethren, in the way that he, he lays out these, these conditions. Now, what am I saying here? Not everyone who is on this call might agree with me, but that's okay, because we're just scratching the surface. We're just starting here. We might have to continue this next week. Okay? Well, let me read my notes so that I keep on track. God is also against treacherous treatment of spouses, such as abuse, abandonment, neglect, exploitation, um, as we have seen before. In this Bible passage, the first three chapters of the book of Malachi, God say he's fed up with the people's disrespect towards him and their disregard to the covenant, his covenant with them. God threatens um, that Judah would pay the consequences of such things. And in the Old Testament, God gave Israel a bill of divorcement. And um, we see twice in the Old Testament where God would give a bill of divorcement. Um, in, because they were spiritually unfaithful to him. So God, how could God say under no condition you should have divorced when God himself gave it under certain conditions? So, you know, God rebukes and warns them due to their many betrayals, including the following. In other words, before we get even into chapter two of Malachi, where he says this, um, you hate your wife and divorce her and so on. He, is, he has been dealing with the problem with the whole nation leading up to that. And he's dealing with specific problems now dealing with that. He rebukes and warns them due to their many betrayals, including the following. Judah disrespected God by violating the covenant. The priests cheat God by not offering their appropriate sacrifices. Um, Malachi chapter 1 verses 6 to 8. Read that. Some serious things there. Judah profanes God by marrying foreign women who um, serve foreign gods. 
leading to spiritual adultery. Malachi 2 verse 11. So what these men were doing to their wives, they had already broken faith with God. There's, there's something else coming out here. If you are believers, if you are Christians and you going to break faith in whatever reason, adultery or whatever you, guess what? You break faith with God first before you break faith with your spouse. Oh my goodness. You have committed spiritual adultery because if, if your relationship with Christ and the church is it, supposed to be reflected in a marriage, then to be unfaithful in a marriage, you have to be unfaithful to Christ. And so that this spiritual adultery is, is what manifests itself in physical adultery later on. And we need to understand that. It, and that's why Jesus with a woman caught in adultery. Um, you, you can see, and we have seen in previous studies of Malachi, of Matthew 5, that um, the um, sin of adultery is not just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing with people. And we also break, we've seen here now from Malachi chapter 2, breaking faith with God. And so the entire passage is about breaking promises. And God hate, God's hatred towards divorce is focused on those who break the marital um, relationship or promise by doing wrong and acting treacherously. First, we see the Lord is angry with the people and no longer accept your offerings with favor. You see it in Malachi chapter 1 there, and so on. Then in Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, this is another thing you do. Hear what God says now. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, as I said earlier, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering and accepts it with favor from your hand. Just picture this now in our modern days, because I want to store this down and make this as applicable as possible. Here we are. We are very spiritual. And, you know, we're crying, cover the altar of the Lord with tears. Yes, brethren, we can cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning. All of those are spiritual um, phenomena. And yet still, we are, have been unfaithful and broken promise with God and with our spouses, you see? And so God looks at the heart, God looks at this, and, and what Malachi does, some years ago in church at the first born in Toronto here, I did an in-depth exegesis, um, we went about 30 years ago, on the book of Malachi. Can't forget it. I gave out notes, everything in the book of Malachi. And we see, we went through all of this already. And we see that, um, so when we take this passage, I hate divorce out of context. No, 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 no. It's not what he's really saying. It's something deeper. God hates all the behavior, including the reason divorce, yes, because God's intention is to live, to, to live together, but the reasons for divorce, and it shows the sacredness of the relationship. So even the bill of divorcement, divorcement is showing the sacredness of the marriage. 
You just don't do anything with it. You don't just treat any each other any other way. It is it is it is a buzzword in our church, in our society that you know when you before you get married, everybody treat everybody nicely. But after you get married, somehow there's a change. It's like you know, you don't have to work for the person anymore, you have them now. But that is when you really start to work. And, and, and I've come to so many couples is that they, they talk about the relationship was even better um, before they got married because they didn't really know each other until when they get to know each other now, they realize that, whoa, I mean, um, if, you, if, you, if you have a relation deficit and the other person has a relational deficit, then you, you, you might be marrying tacitly thinking that this person is going to fix you. There's no fixing here because after a word now, that's why the music is nicer, the sky is blue. When you're in love, brethren, it's like butterflies flying in formation in your heart. Uh, one brother in the church here in Toronto, um, I asked Audina study, I said, How do you describe love? Person said, um, love is walking in the heart of winter without a shirt, and it feels like summer. I mean, that is when everything seems to be in harmony. The sky is bluer, everything seems right because there's a fittedness with the other person. As if a deficit you have, that person made up that deficit. But after a while, you realize that when you reach a disillusionment phase of a relationship, you realize that, whoa, I, I, I didn't. This, these things are always there, but we just didn't see them. And then stuff in you know that you weren't there started to come out now. And this is where the Bible is. After the emotions wear off, after the infatuation wears off, and all of these things, after the honeymoon um, wears off, so to speak, and you get to really know each other, you realize that is when love really begins to develop and grow. That is when it not, is not based on fueled by emotions at all. Some um, pagan um, literature, they will say that there is a compound in the brain that has to do with love. And once somebody falls in love, it's active for 18 months or even two years. And then after that, it kind of phases out. That is just a biological justification to try and have different partners and divorce. The Bible does not support that, right? Back to our text here. Why won't God accept their offering? Because of their treachery and marrying the daughter of foreign gods, possibly meaning worshiping other gods too, as I said earlier. These, these men were marrying younger women who were from other religions too. Um, and, um, and, and this is similar to what Ezra went through when even the priests were doing this. Um, we're going to get to that eventually. And so in Malachi, 2.24, the New American Standard Bible, um, it reads this way. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. In other words, I'm just giving it the context even more detail now. Um, what, for what reason? For what reason? There's a reason given. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. The emphasis is on youth. Not that all the people can't get married, but youth against whom you have dealt treasurely, though she is your companion 
and the wife by promise. This is what they were doing. The treacherer behind this makes God angry. He hates divorce by those who get rid of their wives wrongly. But in the literal reading of the text is that um, for the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, does not love his wife, is like hate and divorces his wife. It can be translated that way. Covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself and your spirit and do not do it. Notice God's summary statement. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Notice it says in your spirit because it's a spiritual thing first. It is, it is there that happening where your heart is, where your spirit is. That is where it begins, right? Um, okay, and do not be faithless. God doesn't say do not divorce for any reason. In fact, he sees Israelites turning from, returning from his exile, taking vows before God to divorce their foreign wives who draw them away from their faith. Now, Ezra chapter, chapters 9 and 10. Um, I did some in-depth study on this. I could do a whole lecture on those two verses. But chapter 9 and 10, it seems as if in the Old Testament, you could marry. Um, there, there's one law which says that you could marry a foreigner only if the foreigner were, was brought in and cheered under the same God of Israel and, and um, become submitted to the same God, then you can take that person in. And there are other passages for, for whatever reason state that, um, that, that that should not be so. You look at Ruth, for example. She was uh, not an Israelite and yet still Jesus came through her lineage. So that is where you find that happening through the Goel, the kinsman redeemer um, rule. And even the kinsman redeemer, the Goel factor, was applicable to the Jewish people. And yet still this was applied to Ruth, who was not a Jew. So, you know, it shows you how um, God is a God of the whole earth and not just a nationalistic deity. And so in Ezra 9 and 10, let me just make a few points here is that um, they had just returned from exile and what got them in problems and sent them in exile was because of their mixture and their idolatrous living. And so Ezra being extremely cautious, very careful, and he had been knocked because of this and uh, to contradict other passages, but no, you have to check his context here. He was extremely careful in in, um, in overriding this law of marrying outsiders if they come on a con covenant, on, on, on a covenant or a promise uh, to the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. He overrode that by saying, no, no, you divorce them. And he, was, he addressed all the priests were guilty of that too. Um, and, and, and he made a serious law, a big mass with divorce was happening. And some preachers today use that out of context and say that you should not have racial marriages. And um, there's a prominent pastor in Toronto here. I don't know how true this is, but he says he's, he's a white guy and his, 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 his son, one of his sons wanted to marry a black girl and he used the 
Ezra passage to justify that that marriage should not be. That is wrong. That was based upon nationalistic reason to protect the Israelites from going into idolatry. And it was so serious that um, Ezra um, insisted that um, even if you, are if you are married to a foreign woman and so on, you should divorce her in that context, right? That's some serious statement there. And so if you're gonna to go to Ezra and study concern divorce and all of that, you have to understand the context and the background. There's just much more happening in the background there if you read the text carefully, right? Um, okay. <clears throat> now, no, um, divorce is not evidence for moral decay in society. Um, what I mean by that is that um, in, in, a, in a, an abusive marriage, um, one part, God is protecting the person. And so God is not going to let a law of the board not, not to divorce come before the, the safety of a person. Um, in the pagan society, especially the Hammurabi law, 182, 282 laws, property and person were equal. And in some cases, if you are wealthy, your property valued more than the person if they're not in your status. And some people believe that Moses copied the 10 commandments from from um, this um, Hammurabi code. But that is not true because in, in, in Jewish law, the person was always put before property. If you stole somebody, if somebody owes you something and you're going to take from them, you should, you, should, you should not take their inner court. You should, in other words, the person's personage and safety of the person must be protected um, um, and not your property and your rights put before that. And so it's good to know that God you know, protects people in that regard. Okay. And so, um, okay. Let me get back now to um, the main study that I've been doing concerning divorce and remarriage. And I'm going to go into some more Old Testament passages. In particular, um, Deuteronomy 24, Verses one to four. Now, Deuteronomy 24, one to four is very, very difficult. When I was at Tyndale Seminary under the late Dr. Um, Donna Leggett, Professor Leggett, um, he admitted that this is a difficult text. Um, let me read a section of it. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. Um, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her, mm -hmm. former, then her former husband 
who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, the problem with this text um, is the Hebrew word is when it talks about um, um, indecency, indecency. This passage reveals that the law of Moses uh, of divorce was permitted, but not prescribed. I just want to clear that. In other words, there was reason, but not sanction. Um, um, there is no evidence to show that divorce was approved or morally legitimated. Permission um, was done and was grant toleration was granted, but underlying this very notion is the idea of wrong. We do not properly speak of, um, of granting or conceding in connection with with what is intrinsically right or described um, are desirable. In other words, um, there are situations where God allows it. Again, this is stated. The purpose of the bill of divorce was first to serve as a deterrent um, to hasty, frivolous, thoughtless action by the husband. Second, to testify to the woman's freedom, freedom from marital obligation to be to the husband who divorced her. And thirdly, to protect her reputation from slander that she was an adulteress. It declared that the end to her marriage was caused by something um, that was not um, adultery. And so it means then that this um, uncleanness or indecency is not divorce. And here's where it gets a bit technical. The grounds for divorce was infidelity, yes. And if that were so, then you cannot remarry that person after you divorce them. No, does that mean you can't remarry somebody who you divorce? No, it doesn't mean that. But if a person marries somebody else and then there's a divorce or a death, then you're not supposed to take back this person. But it's all based upon the reasons for the divorce in the first place. If the reasons are not biblical, then is that if she went out and defiled herself, you can't, you're not supposed to take her back in that sense. Um, some believe that um, she is next of kin whatever that means that's just an empty statement next up kin what does that mean um you know um so it, it's it's more pointing to the that the indecency here you can't dump any any meaning into it because it, from the very fact that if, if it was um if indecency meant divorce then the divorce was legit based upon what jesus said but from the very fact that the indecency is not divorce, is not um, adultery, I should say. It means that when 
the person goes out, God doesn't recognize that divorce as a legitimate reason. And so when she goes and marries somebody, it is as if she is in adultery in that setting and um, she has defiled herself, so to speak. And so by coming back to the husband, um, even after that breaks apart, the guy dies, then that itself um, cannot so because it's as if in God's eyes, they're still married because the grounds for divorce was not so. And so indecency is a, is a problem. But then, or even the time, the time of Jesus, um, so on what grounds was divorce allowed? What is the meaning of the word indecency? Literally, nakedness of a thing. What does that mean? Nakedness of a thing. During the period of the Old Testament, there were two schools of thought. One was the rabbinic school of Shammai, S-H-A-M-M-A-I, that embraced a narrow conservative view for divorce. They interpreted indecency as some grave matrimonial offense, a violation of, of marital propriety. What does that mean? You see, that was a school of Shammai, um, very, very conservative and strict. The other school was a school of Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. They embraced, by the way, these two schools are interpreting the word indecency from, from Deuteronomy back then into the context when they had to deal with Jesus and divorce. This was a, the prevailing schools of thought during Jesus's time. And they were basing it off Deuteronomy 21. And so they were dumping all kinds of different reasons and meaning into the word indecency. Um, the, the rabbinical school of Hillel embraced a broad liberal view. They interpreted indecency to mean virtually any trivial offense from being physically unattractive again to being a poor cook. Yes, brethren. That is serious. Um, there are several theories for the meaning of this, this indecency, and I'm just going to list them here. There are several theories of the meaning of indecency that are not likely. Let me just clarify that these are not likely. Adultery, in which case death was required for both parties. Oh, by the way, in the Old Testament, um, if, if it was adultery, um, then um, if you got caught and then you're about it, then um, nobody would be alive to, to tell the tale or to, to marry, to remarry or anything like that. It was punishable by, by death, Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 to, to 27. Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 to 27. Secondly, adultery, suspected but not proven, in which case the right of bitter water was applied. That's Numbers 5, verses 11 to 31. Now, let me detour a little bit. I'm tempted to do this. Um, I'm going to read this section and to let you know, I'm not saying that 
you know, if that is done today or not, but um, I'm going to read this section and you're going to see that if somebody is suspected of adultery, but there are no witnesses, like the woman caught in adultery, nothing like that, but the husband somehow suspects or the wife somehow suspects that the husband was like this. In this case, um, it, um, this is what they did. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is Numbers chapter five, verses 11 to 31. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act, but God saw, you know, and was added, God saw. And if the spirit of jealousy, of the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, and, and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself. So he could be jealous and she's innocent. He could be jealous and she's guilty. How do you find this out now? Well, this is what God told him to do. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it. For it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. In other words, whatever is done here, and the reasons that God, God, that God, God doesn't give the reason, um, is going to bring back remembrance of what? Remembrance, not of the husband or the wife, but remembrance of the event, the act. It's gone in the past, but somehow the spirit of remembrance is bringing it back. Verse 16, and the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and unbind the hair of the woman's head and place in her hands the grain offering of remembrance. Note that word remembrance, which is a grain offering of jealousy. It could be that she will remember, even if she tried to suppress it, and it will activate certain chemicals in her body that will show off certain guilt fragrance, put it that way. Anyway, um, the Bible didn't say that, but this is some, some connection that some scholars indicate. Um, verse 17, verse 18, and the priest shall set the woman before the Lord, unbind the hair of her woman's head, and place her hand in a grain offering, which is a grain offering of jealousy. And in his hand, the priest shall have the water of bitterness, 
which represents the jealousy, that brings the curse. Then the priest shall make her take an oath, saying, if no man has laid with me, and if you have not turned aside to uncleanness while you were under your husband's jealousy, be free from this water of bitterness that brings the curse upon her body. Um, but if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has laid with her with you, then let the priest, then the um, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh fall away and your body swell. May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and may your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curse in a book and wash them off into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness that brings a curse. And the water that brings a curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take a grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall then take the handful of the grain offering as its memorial portion and burn it on the altar and afterwards shall make the woman drink the water. And when she has made, he has made her drink the water. Then if she has defiled herself and has broken faith with her husband, the water that brings a curse shall enter into her and the curse and cause bitter pain and her womb shall swell and her thigh shall fall away and the woman shall become a curse among her people. But the woman is not defiled and is clean. Then she shall be free and shall conceive children. This is a law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under the husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free of iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity if it goes the other way. Now, <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Where's the man in all of this? Because men, let us continue reading. We're going to see some other things too with, with that include men, right? Because men can't bear children and it's harder to detect them um, in many ways because, you know, she can get pregnant or something like that. But let us look at this third point. A betrothed man, woman, charged on her wedding night of not being a virgin. This again, you can't tell me, you can read it in Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 21. Um, this was, this had to do with the, the cloth, the bleeding of the cloth, where you had 
a lady was standing by there and at the night of the honeymoon, the first night, the evidence of the, the hymen being broken was taken as a sign. If it wasn't so, then um, it would be suspect that she was a virgin. But again, um, there's some debate with that too because um, many things can break the hymen, right? That can cause it not to bleed. So a woman could be a virgin and have sexual relationship and there's no hymen bleeding. But um, this was a, what, this was back then in the Jewish context this is what the Bible teaches here. And I'm just reading it. I'm not adding to it or so on. But I'm just saying that there are other places where the Bible protects the woman and the man in certain cases. We hope to cover all of that. Then now a betrothed woman who was raped Deuteronomy 22, verses 5 to 27. Let us, let's be clear here, brethren. God is a just God. He protects man and woman. This is not some unfairness to women in that sense. We're going to see as I go through some more. In um, a woman who was betrothed, who was raped, Deuteronomy, let me just read that one, it's a short one. Deuteronomy 22, it says, um, verse, 20, verse 25 to 27 says, but if they Open, but if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, in other words, she is, you know, engaged from, from somebody else. So she's not unfaithful in this case. But, um, and a man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. Well, pull it there now. Man shall die. God, thank God for grace in brethren now, because a lot of people will be dead. A lot of men will be dead. A lot of women will be dead. A lot of swelling and all kind of stuff will be happening. Here we find, then the man who lay with her shall die. God takes sexual sins and the violation of the marriage and the um, engagement very seriously. Verse 26, but you shall do nothing to the young woman. She was, she has committed no offense punishable by death. And so on and so on, you can read it um, some more. So there you find that in a case like that, nobody's around, but Bapi seizes her, rapes her and um, violates her then he pays, pays a penalty. And, and what about an unbetrothed or unengaged woman who commits fornication? You can read that in Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 to 29. Um, this one is interesting. All of them interesting. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found. Then the man who lay with her shall give her to the father, shall give to the father of the young man 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. Here it is now. <laughs> he has violated, he has violated her. 
he may not divorce her all his days. That means, that means he has sexual relationship with this woman. She's not betrothed to somebody else. Um, and, and he rapes her or whatever you. Um, he shall marry her, right? Pay the, 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 the dad, marry her. And in that case, because of that case, God is like teaching him a lesson now. Um, in a case like that, he shall be her wife for the rest of the day. Even if she does anything wrong, but he cannot divorce her. Cannot divorce her. You violate her. You do what you can do with her. Then you have to live with her. Can't divorce her. And nowadays, a lot of men take away women's virginity. They do everything when they get when they want to get married. No, they want a nice virgin, nice nice woman from the church. Back in these days, those days couldn't happen. Couldn't happen. And if you did marry a woman, you have to stay with her. You can't just in and out, in and out what you want. God set parameters and rules and set up things for our own good to protect both the man and the woman. Bear with me as I just read a couple more. Um, other sexual offenses such as homosexuality, bestiality, incest, and uh, the penalty for which wasn't divorce was death. If you read Leviticus chapter 18, verses 26 to 29, and Leviticus 20 goes into some more details with the consequences too. There you find, if you were committing homosexuality, it was punishable by death. Bestiality going to an animal, punishable by death. Incest, you turn on your own child, punishable by death. That's a sign that God takes this thing seriously. Sexuality is more than just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. It is something before God, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul talks about if a man joins himself to a harlot, um, he becomes one with her. What? That is that can affect. That is why it's good to be chased at young women, young girls. Keep your virginity, guys. Keep yourself until the time comes. You know. Um, Young children come up as young Christians. Don't be deceived. Don't be drawn in. Because when you get married, if you don't for the grace of God, bringing healing to your heart and your soul, it's as if pieces of you scattered all over the place. And that can lead to dysfunctionality in relationships. A lot of innocent women have been violated, abused, and, um, and they have been brought into a relationship, even as Christian women, and they're having problems with your husband and sexuality because of this this abusive relationship, it should not be so. And um, it's only by the grace of God that healing can take place at that level. And God is able to do far above and beyond all that we may ever ask or think to bring healing in, in those areas. And so we're out of time. We're gonna pick up again next week, get into more details into the actual New Testament teaching and other Old Testament passages to show you, um, um, just to touch on things as we go about the seriousness of marriage and 
and divorce and remarriage because that's it. marriage, divorce, remarriage. We're going to see that. Um, we hope next week, Lord willing, that we show that um, remarriage is permitted under certain conditions based upon the reasons for divorce and so on. But we're going to continue looking at sexuality, divorce, and all these things from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Next week, we're going to spend some more time in um and finish off in the Old Testament and go into the New Testament and talk about, um, about other teachings in the New Testament and relevant for today, okay? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that these are some difficult eras we are going through. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us not just to speak topically, but exegetically where we have to deal with each verse as we go along so we cannot escape the difficult and controversial passages. And these issues have to be dealt with. We might not have all the answers, but whatever answers we have, they indicate that you are holy and marriage is sacred. And as much as light in us by your grace, that we should, we should be faithful to each other until death. But, oh God, we see certain exceptions, dear. Help us to understand everything in context, to go through this very complex and many faceted subject and topic, I should say. I pray in the name of Jesus that you will preserve us and lead us in the, in the, into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen.